Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship by being in your word and having your word over us as authoritative. Father, we are not the ones who uh, put your word under us. Rather, it is over us. Father, we submit ourselves to the authority of your revealed will. We thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, through your holy apostles and prophets, your chosen ones who you authorized to write a book. You wrote through them by your Holy Spirit, and we thank you that we have this revelation available to us in plain language. And we pray that as we study tonight, as we think tonight, as we discover what you have given as gifts to the church, we would be helped tonight. Please come by your Holy Spirit. Help us by your Holy Spirit. Give us attention. Move us. Change us. Transform us by the renewing of our mind. And I pray that these truths that we learn tonight would not just be intellectual, but rather they would be transformational. That we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. Help us, we pray. Holy Spirit, move tonight. Move now, we pray. We ask, please. And it's because of Jesus' person and work we can pray and do pray. Amen. Amen. So, You can look at the text on the screen if you'd like, or you can follow along in your own Bible uh, on your phone or or your physical Bible. So let's start. Ephesians 4, 7 to 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. You can translate that men and women. In saying he ascended... What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? You can translate the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Remember, we did two weeks in Ephesians 1, uh, Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. And in the context here, we are learning about unity. Unity. So you remember last week there were seven truths that were unifying factors. You know, one God and Father of all, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, one faith, all these unifying factors. And we are to, in verse 3, be eager, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This unity is continuing, this theme of unity is continuing into this verse 7 and on. However, John Stott, the British theologian, brilliantly notes this, and I think this is worth repeating. He says, verse 6 speaks of God as the Father of us all, who is above all, through all, and in all. Verse 7, however, begins, but grace was given to each of us. Thus, Paul turns from all of us to each of us, and so from the unity to the diversity of the church. So we go from the unity of the church here to the diversity of the church. And those thought sees us moving from unity to diversity. I want to emphasize that the context, the contextual flow must be unity in diversity. 
Okay? And, and that's what we're shooting for as a church. It's one of our core commitments to unify people. We're a diverse church with not only diverse ethnicities, but with diverse backgrounds and cultures and subcultures and likes and jobs and worldviews. We have a diverse amount of people here. And this text is saying that there is a gift, a grace given to each one of you, each one of you who is a Christian. Okay, so let's jump into that because this is now individually your text. This is your text tonight. This is my text tonight. You will find yourself in this text. And the purpose of your gifting, look at verse 12 there at the bottom, is to do the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. And specifically, if you're a part of this local body of Christ, it's, it's this body. That's why God has gifted you. Not just in general, not for your glory, not for your own purposes, not for your self-exaltation, but rather so that you can use the gifts God given, has given you to build up this local body. Okay, so let's talk about grace. Look at verse 7 there. But, remember, moving from all, all, all to now each one of you, but grace was given to each one of us. This grace specifically means gift with benefit. Gift with benefit. That's what it means. The each one of us is an individual, listen, custom gifting by God himself. Let's not miss that. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Who is the one who has given us the gift? Well, it's God himself. Now, Paul, who wrote the letter of this Ephesians here to all the churches in Ephesus and Asia Minor, also wrote to the church at Corinth. And, and if you know anything about the church at Corinth, it was a dysfunctional, young, and messed up church, highly disunified church. I mean, they, everyone was exalting themselves above everyone else, and everyone was showboating, and no one was unified. No one was looking out for anyone else. And so Paul has to rebuke these Corinthians, and I think this is worth looking at here in 4-7. What do you have, Corinthian church? What do you have, Eternal City Church, that you did not receive? It's a good question to ask yourself. So let's stop there before you read all that. Listen, what intellectual gifting do you have? What physical gifting do you have that you can work with your hand? Are you any kind of a craftsman? What kind of personality giftings do you have? What kind of people skill giftings do you have? What kind of monetary giftings do you have? What kind of solid family situation did you come from that's a gifting? What you know, wealthy city did you come from? You, know, you, you were born in America and not in Afghanistan in the mountains. I mean, you, you have been given a massive amount of gifting, friends, whether you like it or not, whether you realize it or not. And here, Paul's saying, what do you have that you did not receive? And what's the answer? Nothing. Nothing. And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, this is a temptation, especially for gifted people. We feel superior to others if we're highly gifted, or at least we're tempted to feel superior. And we have to fight that temptation. This verse 7 here is a gift from 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for you to fight temptation. It's a reminder. Okay, what do I have that I did not receive from God? James 1, 17, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights of whom there's no shadow of turning. Okay, every good and perfect gift comes down. If we have any gifting, if there's any benefit, if there's any skills, if there's any 
thing that you have that someone else doesn't have. Listen, it's not an occasion for looking down on someone else. Rather, it's an occasion for humility and thankfulness. What do you have that you did not receive? Okay, so that, that's the posture we should take. Listen, God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Listen, to be Christian and to be proud is a contradiction. Because the fact that you are a Christian is all of grace. It has nothing to do with you. Jesus himself said, I, I didn't, you didn't choose me. I chose you to go and bear fruit. Now, he said that to the apostles, but he could have certainly said that to you and I too. I mean, we've gone through Ephesians 1. So, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7. Now, this is helpful. There are varieties of gifts. Okay, variety. God loves variety. You know that, right? You know, go and Google how many kinds of frogs are there. Go and Google how many kinds of beetles are there. Go and Google how many kinds of, of um, fruit are there. And you will see that God loves variety. How many kinds of fish are there? And, and you'll see that God just loves diversity, and he loves variety. He's not like the little kid who, when you ask, what do you want for dinner? Hot dogs. What do you want for lunch? Hot dogs. What do you want for breakfast? Hot dogs. You know, God's not like that. He's like, I'm sick of hot dogs. I want something else. Now there are varieties of gifts, but listen, the same spirit. See the, the variety in the same? So God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who gives the variety of gifts. Listen, God is the gifter. So your makeup is made up specifically by God, and that should be a huge encouragement to you. And see, for some of us, we don't want to be who we are. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, because I fear a lot of hands would go up. Because we have this weird capacity to compare ourselves with other people, and it's either in the negative or in the positive, we compare ourselves and we feel superior, or we compare ourselves and we feel inferior. And neither are helpful or good. <laughs> what we should rather say to ourselves is, I'm not you, and you're not me, and that's a beautiful thing by God's design. Because God loves variety. But we know that the God who made you, you, and me, me, he made us and gifted us by the same Spirit. So the same Holy Spirit that's working in Luke and PJ is the same Holy Spirit that's working in me. And that's how we should look at it. God's gifted you differently, and he's gifted me differently, but it's the same God and the same Spirit working in us. Verse 5, and there are a varieties of service, but the same Lord, that's Jesus, the Lord of glory. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God, God the Father, see the, the Trinity there, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Spirit, Jesus, Father, who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, and He is the one who moves through you to bless the church. He is the Spirit of Christ in some passages in the New Testament. He's the Spirit of God in some passages in the New Testament. He is the Holy Spirit. And we can see here that this gifting is from God, by God, and he is the one who moves through you in your giftings. So, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. God gets to decide what you get and how much of it you get. And that's okay. You might want more. You might want less. God is the one who determines the gifting. Verse 8, therefore, it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And again, the men is is not specifically male, but it, it could be translated male and female. So he is quoting Psalm 68, 18, and here's the imagery, okay? The imagery of Psalm 68 is this. It's from Mount Sinai going to Jerusalem, and it's the conquest. It's God, through his people, conquering. And if you read the book of Joshua and on, you see the, the conquest of Israel. And they are, in a sense, God's rod of judgment to pagan nations whom God has it out for. That's his purpose for them. Okay, and we, from our vision, from our standpoint, we look back at the book of Joshua and on, and we're just really offended by that. Like, how could God send his people, who are supposed to be righteous, against other nations to wipe them out? Like, how could God do that? But what you need to understand is the Jewish people were not, in their own decisions, in their own scheming, in their own planning, going and taking out people. Rather, it was God who owns all people by, uh, by his being the creator and sustainer, and those very people actively going against him and worshiping other gods. And remember, when... Um, God had a visit with Abraham when Sodom and Gomorrah was about to be destroyed. You remember that? Uh, Abraham was wrestling with God trying to save the city. Do you remember that story? If you remember the story, put your hand up. Okay, a few of you don't. So he's like, if there's, if there's 50 righteous, will you destroy the city for 50? No. And, and he goes on and on and on, down to 10 people. No, if there's 10 righteous people, I will not destroy it. Now, we know there wasn't even five righteous Okay, there wasn't even five. The whole city was wicked. And so, you know, he, he destroys the city. And God will do right. In fact, that's what Abraham said to God. He said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? What's the answer? Absolutely. The judge of all the earth will do right. Now, this passage here is the picture of a conquering king and what the conquering kings would do when they conquered another kingdom, another city, they would lead the captives behind them in a train. And they would also plunder or take the goods of that conquered people. Now, you could see this in the Exodus. You remember when the Jews are leaving after the killing of the firstborn, what happened to the Egyptians? They're like, here's gold, here's silver, here's expensive clothing. And so they plundered them. And that's exactly what God said they would do. And so the picture here is of a conquering king subduing a people and the captives are coming behind them and he is from the spoils of war, if you will, he is now giving out these gifts to his people. Okay, so he's sharing the, the old pirate word booty. He's sharing the booty. Any pirate fans in here other than Pittsburgh Pirates? I know no one's a fan of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah, the old pirate stories. He's sharing the spoils of war, okay? Taken, but then given. Now, something technical, real quick. What happens in the original text is that um, it's not that he is giving, but he's receiving. He's receiving. But first, before we go there, technically, I want to show you a few texts, okay? Who... In this text specifically, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this in our Ephesians 4 context is talking about Jesus. Paul is taking the Psalm 68, 18 text, though it's not talking about Jesus directly, it is, little did we know, prophesying about Jesus. 
And only the Holy Spirit can reveal things like that. Okay? And so the Holy Spirit is saying Psalm 68, 18 was, yes, about Israel, but it was also finding its greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Paul says that he has led a host of captives. And we need to ask, who, who did Jesus capture, defeat, conquer, and now is leading in procession as the victor? I want you to think for just a second, who? And you might say, us. Well, that would be true. He conquers us, if you will, with grace and kindness and mercy. Like we, his people, were conquered with kindness. And where do you get that from? Well, Romans 2 says, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God. But I don't think that's what this is saying. And the reason I don't think it's us is because all through the letter of Ephesians, we see this Jesus being exalted above the rulers, above the principalities, and above the powers of this dark evil world. Ephesians 6, we'll spend a lot of time there. It's called spiritual warfare. And there's a few texts where we can see this. Look, we saw it already in Ephesians 1, 20 to 21. So this is God, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. So it's God, the Father, working in Christ, and he raises Jesus from the dead and seats him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, it's not that, again, the imagery is not, here's a giant throne, here's a little throne, and God's on the big one, and Jesus is on the little one. The right hand was the, hand, the place of power, the place of authority. So Jesus is now the one with all authority outside of God himself. Far above all rule and authority, and look, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So right there in 21, you see the authority, the power, and the dominion, and that's specifically pointing to all earthly rule, but all spiritual rule that is behind the earthly rule. It's a real thing. This is also spoken of clearly in the letter to Colossians. Now, Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians in this same house arrest time in Acts 28 when he wrote the letter to Ephesians. He says, and you, this would be the Christians in Colossae, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I'm not going to expound this, but I will say this. We were dead in sin. God made us alive, and now that we're alive spiritually, also along with that, we are forgiven of all the trespasses against God's moral law. Every one of them. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. How did he do this? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There is a moral law given by a moral lawgiver, and that moral law reflects the character of the moral lawgiver, God the Father. When we violate the moral law of the universe, justice must be served. And there is what some have called cosmic justice, and it will be mediated out by God himself. No one's getting away with anything. But see, how can Christians then be forgiven because we have violated God by violating his moral law? Well, the way that he can be just and the justifier is by having faith in Jesus. He cancels the record of debt. And did you know that when you forgive someone, the, the literal forgiving is the canceling of a debt. So when someone wrongs you, that means they owe you. Yeah, they owe you. <laughs> and when you forgive them, 
you absorb the debt. You say, I no longer hold you in debt for what you've done, and I'm not going to make you pay for it anymore. I'm not going to make you pay for it by reminding you of it. I'm not going to make you pay for it by tarnishing your reputation with other people. I'm not going to be angry at you. I'm not going to make you pay for the debt. I'm going to pay for it. That's called forgiveness. So when you say to your spouse or your boyfriend or, or your girlfriend or your brother, sister, mom, dad, your fellow church member, when you say, will you forgive me? You're saying, I owe you. Will you release the debt? And hopefully they say yes. And this is what God has done for us. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What was the legal demands? Justice must be served. Guilt must be punished. If you're guilty, you need to serve the sentence. Well, Jesus serves it in our place. This he set aside, how? Nailing it to the cross. Jesus took the punishment we deserved, releasing us of the debt we owe to God. God put our debt on Jesus, punished him in our place. We no longer have any debt between us and God. Look, he disarmed, verse 15, the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in it, referring to the cross. So God triumphed, Jesus triumphed over the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame. How? By the cross. That's how Jesus beat Satan, sin, and death. And this is the victory that God has. Okay, this is the victory that God has. Now look at this text. I love this text. This is Luke eleven twenty 20 to 23. Jesus is accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of of demons, the Lord of the flies. And Jesus answers them like, hey, listen, guys, listen. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And then he says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. The king is here with authority. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But... When one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. There's that picture of dividing the spoil when a king conquers uh, another king. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And Jesus is saying here, uh, in response to casting out demons out of people, I'm the strong man. And I have Satan subdued, and I am now plundering his kingdom. And he's plundering people. That's what he's doing. So I could see why some people say, well, you know, the conquered person is Satan, but also the conquered people is us. It's us. Well, I think more clearly it's, it's Satan. Now, but amazingly enough, I actually do have Psalm 68, 18 here. I'm just confused as to where it was. You ascended on high leading a host of captives in your train, look, and receiving gifts among men. Now, Paul said, giving gifts, dishing out, even among the rebellious that the Lord God Almighty may, or that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, how, how do we reconcile this, okay? Let me get technical for just one minute, please. Can, can I have one minute? Okay, so there is two really good answers that Ephesian scholars have worked out here. I like them both. I'm gonna give them both to you. Okay, the word received can also be translated give, take, or bring. Give, take, or bring. Now, number two is this, and I think this one's better. 
In order to give gifts by conquering a kingdom, you first have to take them. You can't give what you haven't taken. And so what Paul is probably doing here is Jesus has taken an order to give. And so he sees the extension of Psalm 68, 18 by now the taken gifts, the received gifts are the ones he's now giving. You see it? And the gifts he's giving out are for our benefit and for the building up of the church. The owner and the maker has conquered the spiritual forces that were against us, and now he is giving gifts to his church to continue to plunder the kingdom of darkness. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Prevail against what? Jesus building his church. You see, hell is opposed to the advancement of the kingdom of God. And listen, who is called to advance the kingdom of God? Put your hand up. Put your hand up. It's you. It's me. That's what these gifts have been given for. And so now that the strong man is bound, if you will, now that Satan has a ruler bigger than him, not that God was ever smaller than him, but now he has nothing against us. The one who had the power of death no longer has it. The one who wielded the the fear of death over us. We, We don't have to be afraid of death anymore because the moment Christians die, instant life forever. Like the very next nanosecond, life. You don't have to be afraid of death anymore. It's a door into paradise, into actual righteousness, into God's kingdom. And now we are actively plundering Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, this present evil age. And that's what we're working against. And listen, don't think it won't be without opposition. Okay, that's why later in chapter 6 he says, Take up and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the enemy and his schemes. And we'll get there. So, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Say men and women. Now, verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? You could translate that the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, what's happening here is this. The owner and the maker of all things became poor and vulnerable. That's what it means that he descended. He had to descend first in order for him to ascend. When did Jesus ascend into heaven? Acts chapter 1. We see the ascension of Christ. But he had to come first. This is Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. The virgin shall be with child. The star pointed uh, the the wise men to where he was. And the shepherds saw the angels. And Jesus has come. He descended. This is Christmas. It's the descending of the maker. But also, he went from untouchable to touchable. From glorious and powerful to... And beautiful to having no former majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we would desire him. Jesus became normal and regular. Like you would see him walking around the streets of first century Jerusalem, Galilee, Nazareth. And you wouldn't be like, why is he glowing? What is happening to him right now? Like he, he did not look like any of the Catholic art. Rather, he looked very normal. 
He looked very regular. He was not even physically attractive if this verse from Isaiah 53 is true. He just looked like a normal, everyday Jewish male. And he was poor. He was a craftsman. He worked with his hands. Okay? And this is the descending of Jesus. We see this clearly in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be humble. Look after the interests of others. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man, the hypostatic union. Okay? Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Obedient to who? Obedient to who? God, the Father. He said, I only live to do what I hear the Father saying, and I only say the things I hear the Father saying. I always live to please the Father. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He became obedient even to the point of death. Father, in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, as a result of this humbling of Jesus, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means ruler. That means authority. To the glory of God the Father. And so what you see here is you see the descending of Jesus, but you also see the exaltation and ascension. The descending resulted in the ascending. And now that he has ascended, he is giving gifts. So look, verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended. Far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, um, we're tempted here to say the far above all heavens means, you know, Paul said, I was caught up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians. He actually says, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven. Most everybody thinks it was him. And what we think that means is, well, the first heaven is our, our atmosphere, okay? And then our solar system, if you will, is like the, the second heaven up into space, and then the third heaven is wherever God is, past the universe. Okay, and this, this verse seems to point to that. Look, he ascended far above the heavens. Where? To where? The third heaven. That he might fill all things. But I don't think it's talking about that. I think it's not so much talking about space as his rule and authority. Because remember, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess spiritual or physical. So he is filling all things with his, his lordness, his godness, his authority, okay? And verse 11, he gave gifts, gifts to men. Now, here we are back up in, in verse seven. Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers. Here's what I want to say about this. I, after Christmas, uh, I want to I dig into this text specifically much more deeply. Okay, so, so there's a lot more here than we can do in our last 14 minutes. 
So what I want to do is just give you the flavor of what this is, but then really dig into it the, the, the 30th, which would be the last Sunday in December. And I think that each one of us fits into functionally one of these five functions, if you will. So let me explain what I mean by that. So he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. And what's their purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. What's the work of ministry? For the building up of the body of Christ. Now, the word apostle literally means sent one. Sent one. Now, there are 12 apostles that Jesus picked. He handpicked 12. One of them named Judas betrayed him. And so he was replaced by a guy named Matthias. Matthias. But then Paul added another, or Paul added, God added another apostle named Paul. Changed Saul to Paul. So we have the 11, or the 12 minus Judas plus Matthias plus Paul. These are capital A apostles. It was an office. When they died, guess what also died? The office. Not that television show. Okay? The office of apostle. There is no such thing anymore. So when you go into some circles, you'll hear, well, I'm Apostle Jake. Well, what do you mean by that, Jake? Like, do you mean you're like Peter and John and James? Like, you up there with them? You writing authoritative scripture? Like, can you speak for God directly and what you say is, is without error? Probably not. Probably not. So the office is closed, but listen, the function of apostle is alive and well. The function of apostle is alive and well. And some of us have been gifted functionally, apostolically. Now, what does that mean? That means sent. You're, in a sense, more entrepreneurial than other people. You're willing to take risks. You're always looking for the future, and that affects the now. What do we got to do now because the future is coming? You're always looking for what's the next step? How do we advance to the next move? Where are we going You know, it's Paul writing to Romans, or writing to the Roman church, and he says, I am ambitious to go to Spain, and if I can come see you by way of Spain, all the better. I'd love that. And and so Paul is posted up in a city, and he's always thinking about the next city. Where can I go and start a new work? Okay? So these are, if you will, the, the function of an apostle, but it's for God's kingdom. Where can we go next? What can we do next to see God's kingdom branch out? They're not happy with how it is. They're not trying to maintain what is. They're not trying to manage what is. Rather, they're saying, where do we go next? How do we get there? How do we move to to the next step? That's the, the apostle. The prophet, the prophet of the Old Testament was like Isaiah and Amos and Elijah and Elisha. Now we could say these are capital P prophets. Okay? And they spoke for God when they said, Thus says the Lord, and they spoke, and it was God speaking through them. Okay? That office, office of prophet, it's gone. There are no prophets in the office sense. However, there are small p prophets. And they function like the prophets did. And we'll dig into this more. But what, what did prophets often do? You think about them in the Old Testament. And we always think about prophets as for, like telling the future. That's, that's kind of our only category for prophets. But that's not all they did. 
Like think about John the Baptist of the, of the last of the prophets. He was speaking so authoritatively, even soldiers were coming to him, speaking to power and saying, what do we do? He was speaking to the king saying, this is not right. You need to repent. So the prophets spoke to power in ways that normal people just didn't. The prophets were always looking out for who? The widows, the orphans, those who experienced injustice. They were calling on the greedy people to repent because God's wrath was coming against them because they were oppressing the people. These are the prophets. You can think of a a Martin Luther King Jr. as a modern-day small p prophet. And, And that function is alive and well. And some of you have that gifting. You have that drive. You have that passion. There's, you're justice sensitive, okay? And I'm not going to ask for hands, and we'll dig into this more, but there is a small p profit function still at work. Do you know any? Are you one of them? Are you more like an apostle, small a, functionally? Or how about the evangelists? The evangelists, I don't think this is, is an office either. Rather, it's a gifting, and it's a function. Evangelists love to spread the good news to people who are not Christians. They want to see non-Christians become Christians. It's all they can think about. In fact, most evangelists can't even imagine why you would do anything else with your time. Like, why would you do anything else? That doesn't even make sense. Like, why would you go to work? You should be out witnessing, right? And and that's a young evangelist thought, you know. Mature evangelists have, have, have grown a bit, but, but that could be the temptation. It's like you're, you're, you can't sleep at night because people are going to hell and we got to tell them the gospel. And that, sadly, a lot of evangelists take the weight of eternal souls on themselves, and they should not because it's not, you're not the savior, evangelists, okay? Rather, you have been commissioned as a mailman to deliver good news, and God gets to decide what he does with the news. But your passion is still for the lost and to see those who don't know Jesus come to know him. Okay? And there are people who have been specifically gifted like this, and that's their sphere they operate in. Okay? And, and again, it's not that if you're not one of these functions, you'll never step into that role ever. It doesn't mean that. Okay? So teachers do evangelize. We'll get to the teachers. Uh, the, the evangelists sometimes step into the prophet role, and sometimes the prophets step into the apostle role. But you have a makeup by God uniquely, probably in one of these five. How about the shepherds? The shepherds. You could translate that pastors. What pastors do is they gather a flock Right? Think about the imagery here, shepherds, and they tend to the needs of the flock. In fact, pastor can be translated shepherd. And Jesus is what? The chief shepherd. He's the one who looks after his flock, the sheep, and he sets up under shepherds. They're called elders or pastors. And they look after the souls of men and women, and we're real specific, the members of the local church. That's who they're accountable for on Judgment Day, okay? And they want to know, how are you doing? They're very concerned with your spiritual well-being. They want to see you uh, get healed in your soul. They're they're soul physicians, if you will. Okay, caretakers. So you can think about all kinds of people who would fit into this pastoring role. And we were just having a conversation this week about gospel-centered communities. One of the functions of gospel-centered communities, we want you all to pastor each other shepherd each other, 
care for each other's souls. It's a, it's a purpose of the gospel-centered communities. They love to see harmony within the body, and they're willing to go after people who are harming the body, causing disruption, causing chaos, picking off sheep. Okay? Shepherds. Lastly, teachers. It goes without explaining, but they're the guardians of the truth, if you will. Not guarding the galaxy, they're guarding the truth. And what they want to do is they want to get as many people as possible to understand the depths of God's revelation. And they get really excited when they stumble upon a new truth. Like they can't sleep at night. It keeps them up. And they're always reading and they're always listening and they can't stop thinking about what they don't know. I don't know enough. Right? And it's sometimes paralyzing because you feel like you never know enough. But teachers are gifted to communicate very complex truths at times in simple ways so that the average person, if you will, can get it. They're gifted to communicate and the people receive the communication in a way that's beneficial. Teachers. And God has gifted some to be these. So we're going to dig this again on the 30th, but we're going to go specifically, what are you out of those five? You're one of them. And here's what's interesting. God gave these apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers for what? To equip the saints. Now, who are the saints? If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Yeah, I know Augustine was a saint, but so are you. I know Teresa's got saint in front of her name, but so are you. Anyone who names the name of Christ is a saint. And the gifts are for the equipping of others who don't have that same gift. This is the one anothering ministry. This is the priesthood of all believers. Okay? And sadly, a lot of churches, and, and, and this is a temptation for us, a, a lot of churches have one, if you will, the guy up front preaching, he's the only minister, and everybody else is receiving the ministry. Like, I'm a receiver. We pay you to do your job, and you give us the goods. <laughs> okay? But this text is actually saying that God expects all of us who are saints to be equipping each other for the work of ministry. Look, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. What is the ministry? For building up the body of Christ. When we are operating in the gifting God has given us, and not only operating in our own gifting, but listen, equipping others out of our gifting, the body of Christ will be built up. And listen, a church is deficient if it has pastors and teachers or evangelists and prophets or only prophets. We need everybody in the, in the full gifting to operate to see the church built up. We need this. Okay? But what, here's what you need to see for yourself. God has called you specifically to ministry. You realize that. Now, I don't mean you're going to go into full-time ministry, but you're in full-time ministry. And it's been said like this, whoever your employer is, is, in, is employing you to do full-time ministry. So though the church pays a bit of my salary, the rest of my salary is paid through my hands doing upholstery work. Okay, but I'm in full-time ministry. I'm not in part-time ministry. 
See what I'm saying? And you need to see yourself, I am a minister. Ministers are anyone who does ministry. And I am called by God to build up the church, to be involved and to not be a spectator and to not be a receiver or a consumer. God has called you specifically, friends, to get involved. And listen, when we're all engaged and involved, I believe God is going to to move with power. I mean, I really want to see the lost come to know Christ. That's the evangelist kind of heart that I have. But I also want to see those of you who are young in the faith grow in the faith and become discipled. I want to see those of you with a, a low biblical understanding become strong in your biblical understanding. I want to see the people who are the widows, who are the orphans, who are the fatherless, get out of those places. Even if it's functionally by way of the church. Okay? I want to see us move beyond our local church and, and see other works started. And maybe God will call some of you to start new works or to go with somebody that's been called to start a new work, to go beyond where we are, to, to go beyond Gulu, Uganda, and perhaps go to other countries or parts of the world. But listen, we can't do it alone. Okay? Eddie and I cannot do the work of ministry alone. We need you guys. Okay, more on that to come. And remember, what we're talking about is functions, not offices. Functions, not offices. If you think offices, some of you are not going to come back next week. Okay? They're functional, not just offices. All right, three questions and we're done. Do you see yourself as a part of the body of Christ? Do you see yourself as a part of the body of Christ. Yes, the larger body, but specifically a local body. It's essential. Otherwise, who are you called to minister to? Like, yes, those on your street. Yes, those in your workplace. Yes, those in your family, of course. But there's a specific people called the church, and you should be connected to one somewhere that you call your home church. And those also are the people whom God has gifted you uh, to minister to. And so are you and do you see yourself as a part of the body of Christ? If not, why not? If not, why not? What's the barrier? You need to think about this. What is, the, what is keeping me either from joining the body of Christ, becoming a Christian? Like what is the thing that's key? Is it my family? Is it these truths that I just can't write? Is it the exclusivity? Is it what will people think? What is the barrier? Think about it right now. What is keeping you from coming to Christ, from entering his body, from entering salvation, from being forgiven, from saying, Jesus, you're Lord, and I'm not anymore, from saying, will you forgive me for all of my sins and reconcile me to the Father? Or if you're not able or willing to commit to a local church, what's the barrier? That's the question you need to ask yourself. Like, what is it? Are you afraid of commitment? Have you committed before and got burned? Do you not understand why? Do you not see the value in it? Do you not see the biblical mandate? What's the barrier? I think you need to ask yourself. And, and then you need to talk to one of us. Okay? By us, I mean myself, Eddie, Vince would love to talk to you. PJ would love to talk to you. We are in the official leadership of the church. But any of the members who you've seen up here, talk to them. They get it. And they would love to talk to you. We would love to talk to you. That's why we're here. If you are a part of the body of Christ, 
Then are you actively laboring? We could add joyfully to that because I think that's, that's important. Are you joyfully laboring for the building up of the body? Because it is a burden at times, but the, the Lord should be enabling you by his spirit to enjoy the work he's given you to do. Are you joyfully laboring for the building up of the body of Christ? Number three, are you willing to see if Jesus will move through you in a new and amazing way to build up the body of Christ? Like, are you willing to step out of the comfort zone, out of your norm, out of what you've known, into something new and see what God might do? Are you willing to try that? It is for one reason that we can even call ourselves a part of the body of Christ. And you know it. It's because Jesus gave up his own body so that we could enter in. Now, Jesus is the head of the body, and we are, by extension, his body, literally. And we are in Christ. We're united to him. There's this great mystery of union with Jesus that comes by way of us abandoning ourself, abandoning our own efforts, abandoning our own righteousness, abandoning uh, what we're holding on to to get God's approval, and rather falling on Christ alone, asking for forgiveness, saying, you are Lord and not me. Will you forgive me? Will you receive me? And when we unite to Christ, friends, we get all the benefits. We get forgiveness. We get positive righteousness. We get a new family. We get a new father. We get gifts. We get eternity. We get a new universe to look forward to. And Jesus gets death by uniting to us. Like it cost him everything to unite to you. Even death on a cross. One of the worst and horrific ways to die. But yet he was willing. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. So Jesus was willing to say, yes, I will unite myself to you even though it will cost me everything. And when we unite to him, we get all the benefits. It's beautiful. And that's, that's what we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate communion right now. And if you have never come to Christ in a saving way, and what I mean by that is, if you've never come to Jesus and asked him to forgive you of all your sins, that debt that stood against you, if you've never asked him to take away that debt by it being nailed to the cross, tonight's the night, friends.